Uh, if you have a Bible and would like to follow along with the passage today, we're at the end of Judges. Judges 19 is where we'll begin. We've been working through the book of Judges this term and today we'll be finishing it off. Uh, it's a long passage and so I'm going to read some of it in a moment, but we're not going to read all of it because we're covering chapters 19 uh, through 21. But if you want to look it up, uh, then when I start reading, we'll pick it up at verse 22 of chapter 19. Uh, each week, some of you will feel deeply out of place uh, in church. I think of the soldier returning from Afghanistan, Iraq. He's seen his colleagues shot, friends blown up. He flies back. He goes to church the next Sunday morning. And the people are singing and smiling. Rejoice, the Lord is king. And he feels the tension, the tension between the joy around him, friends smiling in the safe west, cups of coffee warming their hands. And what he experienced just a few days ago on the front line. Think of the nurse who comes out of the hospital at 9am and hurries to church. She's been working in palliative care. A six-year-old has died in her arms just that morning. How good is the God we adore, the church sings. And she feels the tension. Smiley, happy people. And the tragedy she's just left. Think of the child who arrives at church and has seen total brutality in her home that morning. And yet again, all around her, the other children are laughing and playing. For some people, church can feel an incredibly odd place. On the whole, I hope, it is a place of joy and happiness. But some of us know real tragedy, real wickedness, real darkness. We will all know it to some extent, but for one, two, three, four, I don't know how many this morning, for a handful, you will know utter darkness. A darkness that most of us in the room have never known and may never know. And that's why dark as the passage we're about to read is, it is such good news. What hope is there for those who have seen such wickedness? Well, hope is going to be found in the fact that God himself, too, has seen such wickedness. No one else may understand. No one else may know. But the Lord God does. Uh, chapter 19 begins. It begins with a Levite. A Levite children is a, a church leader, a minister of the day. He's there in verse one and he takes a concubine. Now, that's a bad start. A concubine is a second class wife. Okay, second wife. He doesn't get the rights of a first wife. So already he's on a, on a bad track. And we, we hear that pretty soon she's unfaithful to him. Uh, so whether ashamed of the affair or frightened of his response, she runs away back to her dad uh, in Bethlehem. So in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 19, we have these marriage troubles. But the Levite wants to win her back. So he heads off after four months to Bethlehem and goes to her father's house, the father who lives in Bethlehem. And in verses four through nine, we get a really long account of his stay there. The Levite and the concubine seem to be reconciled, although there's not much talk about what she thinks or she feels. It's basically the action is between the dad and the, the husband. 
But after a while, the, the Levite tries to leave to, to head home. But the father keeps saying, no, stay, stay. The father is incredibly hospitable. And this home in Bethlehem is a home of great hospitality and joy. And so the father says, no, stay another day, stay another day, stay another day. And so the Levite and his concubine do. They stay and stay and stay until eventually the Levites, we've got to go. And by the time they do depart, it's getting late in the day. They've already stayed several days. It's getting late even on the day that they're going to leave. And in fact, as the story we're about to read goes on, you might notice that it gets later and later and darker and darker. The, the, the Holy Spirit, who ultimately wrote Judges, is a masterful author. Okay, even that the pictures that, that he's painting show us what is going on. As the sun sets, well, so too the darkness falls on those involved in the story. So the, the Levite and the concubine, they, they head off on a journey. And they're heading home back to where they're from, from, from Bethlehem. And they're heading home. And they get, first of all, to a place called Jebus. Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. Jebus is Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, we're told, hasn't been conquered yet. It's still full of Canaanites. Children, you might remember the book of Judges began with the people being told to go and conquer the rest of the land. And most of, of, of Israel now is under the control of God's people. But, but Jebus, Jerusalem, isn't. And so the, the, the Levite says, well, we're not staying the night there. We need to stay the night somewhere. We won't make it home tonight, but we're not staying there. And on they push to this place, Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is a small town in the tribe of Benjamin. And, and the, the Levite thinks, great, well, these are Israelites. We'll stay the night in Gibeah of Benjamin. But when they get there, no one takes them in. And he has to say, well, we'll camp in the town square. And eventually, an old man, an old man who we, we're told isn't actually from Gibeah. He is from another tribe. He's down there staying too or has moved there because he's got a house. He says, no, no, don't stay the night in the square. And already we're beginning to wonder, why not? What's so bad about sleeping out under the stars in Gibeah? But the man takes them into his house. And we're going to pick up the reading uh, in verse 22. Uh, so join me, Judges 19, 22, let me read. So by this time, everybody's at home in the house. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's get going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking a hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. 
And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. The man and his concubine who were on the journey. Notice nobody is named. There's reasons we'll come back to that later on. Nobody's got a name. The man and his concubine stay with the, the, the local. And worthless fellows, we, we, we're told in verse 22, beat on the floor. Literally, that's sons of Bel- um, Belial. It's a funny little phrase, sons of Belial. It's an expression that comes just once earlier in the Bible. Uh, in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. Sons of Belial there are those who will lead Israel astray. If a son of Belial, the law says, if a son of Belial tries to get you to worship another God, then their entire city are to be put to death, destroyed. The whole town is to be burnt as a burnt offering. Just keep that on your head because it's going to come back later. As a punishment for trying to lead God's people away from the true God, away from the gospel, away from the saviour, we might say. And actually, Paul in the New Testament picks up that same phrase, son of Belial, and uses it as those who worship Satan. Belial almost becomes another word for Satan. So in verse 22, these these satanic people are knocking on the door. And they demand, I don't want to be too graphic this morning, but I don't want to be less graphic than than the scriptures itself, themselves. Uh, They demand that this man be thrown out, the Levite, so that they can know him, biblical language, knowing is, to put it euphemistically, to have sexual relations. Now, already that's pretty bad. Laws of hospitality being violated. Uh, laws of marriage being violated. It is going to be homosexual sexual assault. But it gets, if anything, worse. That the, the, the man on the inside says, well, no, don't do such a thing. And so far, so good. But what does he offer? He offers and said, take my, take my unmarried daughter and take his concubine. But it doesn't seem to be working. Uh, the guys outside said, no, 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 we want the Levite, we want the Levite. So, so what happens? Well, we read, we read in verse 25 that the man took the concubine and threw him out, threw her out. It seems that's probably the Levite. The Levite gets his own wife, chucks her out the door. And isn't it horrible what the homeowner says in verse 24? Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do with them what seems to good, good to you. Literally, that is, do what is right in your own eyes to them. Uh, this whole st- story started, verse 19, sorry, chapter 19, verse 1, started in those days when there was no king in Israel. The whole story ends, the last verse of the, ch- uh, of the, the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The whole story begins and ends with the same phrase. There was no king. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And here in the middle of the book, this horrific crime, the Gibeonite says, do with her whatever's right in your own eyes. The tragedy goes on. One of the saddest verses of the, in the whole Bible, chapter 19, verse 25, the men seized the concubine. Sorry, the man seized the con- concubine, sent her out. And they knew her, abused her all night until the morning. Again, night is it's total blackness now. And as morning appears, verse 26, she falls at the, the entrance to the house. Almost unbelievably, it seems, verse 27, the master rose up, the Levite. He's had a good night's sleep. 
not only has he not been out there fighting for his for his bride, he's not even been inside the house wailing and mourning. He just laid down, had a good night's sleep. He gets up, opens the door, and isn't that? Can you see it? It's such a tragic scene. Behold, there's his concubine, there's his wife, lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. She's managed to stagger home, and her hands just gripping the doorstep, head on the mat. How does he respond? He barks at her, verse 28. Get up, let's get going. It's even shorter in Hebrew. It's just a, it's just a bark. Come on, time to go. On the donkey. And when she doesn't get up, again, no tears, no weeping, no mourning. He picks her up, puts her on the donkey, heads home. And then in a horrendous end, he chops her into 12 pieces and sends each piece, one piece each, to each of the 12 tribes as a way of summoning them, them to justice. Let me pause there. We're going to get through the whole story and then come back to see sort of big picture what it's about. But so far, even just at this stage, what is going on? It may be ringing some bells. A story of two people coming to a town, being rejected by the town, not having any place to stay, setting up camp in the town square and eventually being welcomed into someone's house, one man's house. The town's men then coming, knocking on the door, asking to assault the man. It's exactly like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Um, I can't work these kind of things out, but so the scholars tell me. A quarter of the words are the same in the two accounts. A quarter of the words are the same. And both accounts, it's amazing, isn't it? Both accounts, apparently, are exactly the same number of words. It's not just the action is the same. A quarter of the words are literally the same, and it's exactly the same number of words. Clearly, we're being meant to compare the two towns. And what's the point? Israel, this is in Israel, God's people. Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah, that almost sort of epitome of wickedness in the Old Testament. Sadly, we might say the story doesn't even end there. Chapter 20, we're not going to have time to read it. Let me tell you what happens. In chapter 20, when the pieces of this poor woman are sent to the, the nations, the, the 12 tribes, rather, the 12 tribes gather at Mitzpah and they say, what are we going to do? Nothing has ever happened like this. This is horrendous. It's not totally clear whether they think the crime is horrendous or what the Levite did is horrendous. Obviously, both are. But, but they, they decide that Benjamin, the tribe that Gibeah is a city of, Benjamin needs punishing. And so they, they, they call Benjamin and they say, look, hand over the criminals. That you, they can't get away with this. This is utterly awful. But Benjamin won't do it, as one writer says, for them, blood is thicker than covenant. They won't hand their, their relatives over. They'd rather stick with their family than with justice. You see that often, don't you? Even if it means other people suffer, I will stick with my kith and kin, my blood. And so the people of Israel say, right, it's war then. We're going to have to come and execute justice on you. And they appeal to the Lord and say, which tribe should go up first? And the Lord says, well, Judah. And so far, we're thinking, great, Judah is the royal tribe. At the beginning of the book of Judges, if you remember right back to probably September when we started this series, the same thing happens. The tribes are going to fight. The tribes of Israel are going to fight this time against their enemies, the Canaanites. And they say, who should go up first? And the Lord says, Judah. And Judah goes up and wins the battle. So the same thing happens. Sadly, this time it's against their own people. But Judah go up and they get thrashed. The Benjamites win. They're left-handed, the Benjamites, and they, they just thrash uh, their brothers and so the people weep, weep and wail and they they come back to the lord and say well do we, do we have another go tomorrow do we try and fight a second battle and the lord says yes go again and so israel goes again and again they lose 
John, do you see what's happening? The baddies are winning. A third time they come together. And this third time, in verse 26 of chapter 20, before they go out this time, uh, we read, All the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and made burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They sacrificed before the Lord. Sacrifices for their sin. It's as if they're realising, do you know what? Lord, we are not any better than the Benjaminites who were fighting. The 11 tribes realised they themselves need atonement. They need forgiveness. They need to be at peace with God. And lo and behold, the next day, well, the battle is won. Most of chapter 20 is quite a long account of the battle. There's a kind of trap. So the Israelites attack uh, the Benjaminites who are all hiding in the city of Gibeah. And the, the, the Benjaminites think, well, we're going to win again. Third time, it'll be easy. And so they come out of the city and the Israelites pretend to run away. So the Benjaminites chase them. But actually a whole bunch of Israelites were hiding in ambush. And they get into the city and they burn the city of Gibeah. And the Benjaminites are defeated. In fact, they're not just defeated, they're totally slaughtered. So significant is the victory that by the end of chapter 20, verse 47, there are only 600 men left of the tribe of Benjamin. Everybody else has been killed by their fellow Israelites. Men, women, children, everybody else has been killed. 600 men are left and they go and hide in these rocks, the rocks of Rimmon. It means pomegranate rocks. Uh, Gibeah is set on fire. Again, a similar theme is coming back, just as in chapter 19. The church has become like the world. The Israelites have become like Canaan. The book began with Israel fighting against the Canaanites, the ones who worship false gods, the ones who didn't believe in Yahweh. The book ends with the Israelites fighting against their own people who've turned away from God. Civil war rather than a war of conquest. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, chapter 21. In chapter 21, that the war stops and that the 11 tribes realise, well, if we keep going, we're going to wipe out totally the tribe of Benjamin. And God always said that the 12 tribes would have an inheritance. So if we wipe them out, what's going to happen? There are 600 men left. And so they stop killing the Benjaminites. But there's a problem. There's only 600 men left. They've got no wives and no way of getting wives because the other Israelites, before they started the battle, made a vow. None of us will give our daughters as wives to Benjaminites. So what's going to happen is those 600 Benjaminites are going to be stuck in the caves. They'll eventually just die childless, no wives, and the whole tribe will go. And Israel thinks, well, what are we to do about this? And they come up with a, well, a frankly astonishing plan. The Israelites work out that one town, a town called Jabesh Gilead, one town didn't come and join the attack on the Benjaminites. And so they say, well, well, there's the answer. That that town wasn't there at the big meeting where we decided to go and punish Benjamin for that awful crime. And therefore, they weren't part of the group that took the vow not to give the daughters to the Benjaminites. So what we'll do is we ourselves will go and attack them, kill everybody apart from unmarried women, and we'll steal those women and give them to the Benjaminites. They turn on their own people, in other words. And that's what happens. There's another slaughter. The entire town of Jabbath Gilead is wiped out. And only the unmarried women are taken as wives, captives for the Benjaminites. But it doesn't even end there. 
It turns out there's only 400 unmarried women in Jawath Gilead, and so there's still 200 short. And still they don't stop. They get together. It's hit now in verse 18 of chapter 21. The elders of Israel, the elders of the congregation, see this is the spiritual leaders, the elders. Elders are not a New Testament phenomenon, notice. It's not something we invented after Jesus came or after Pentecost. Elders have always led God's people. The elders get together. The elders of the congregation, the church. What shall we do for wives, for those that are left? Still 200 short. And then one of them has another idea. Well, well, just a minute. It's nearly the time of the festival at Shiloh. Now, no one really knows what this festival is, but it's evidently some sort of festival where, where the girls of Shiloh go and dance in the vineyards. So they say, this is what we'll do. We'll tell the Benjaminites there's going to be a load of young unmarried girls dancing in the vineyards. And we'll tell the Benjaminites where it's going to happen and when, and then they can hide behind the trees and jump out and grab a wife, everyone who hasn't got one. That way we won't be breaking our word about not giving our wives to them because they'll have stolen them from us. See how twisted that the mind has got by this stage in Judges. And so that happens. That happens. 200 Benjaminites go and hide behind the trees in the vineyard. The girls come out to dance. The Benjaminites jump out, grab a wife each. And so the book ends. Verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a long story, but it's one, one unit, which is why I wanted to cover it in one morning. What do you do with it? What is that doing in the Bible? It's, it's Advent, so the beginning of Advent, isn't it? It's not a very Christmassy story, is it, at first glance? In one sense, it's showing us life without a king. That's fairly obvious, isn't it? The story starts and ends with the same phrase. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is a picture of the world around us, isn't it? This is what happens. We're being shown a window. This is what happens when people reject the Lord as king. Of course, there was a king in Israel because the Lord God was the king. But the people weren't interested in him. If you get rid of God, you get rid of the Lord, the judge, the one to whom we're all accountable. If there's above us, as John Lennon sang, only sky, no hell below us. Above us, only sky, no God. If you spend the best part of 150 years now teaching people that they are just animals. They are here by accident. They are sacks of chemicals. They're here as the result of the blind forces of evolution. If you tell people they're animals... And that's it. Then it's no surprise when they act like it. Why shouldn't they? It's one of the great religious revealers of our society, by which I mean a revealer that our society is incredibly religious. It's not the mosques, the temples, the synagogues and the churches that show that. It is the incredible leap of faith needed by those outside the church to maintain any kind of morality. Why should someone who's been told they're just here by chance, when they die, they dissolve, that they have no more inherent worth than the bread next to me or the music stand from which I'm preaching, they're just chemicals in a different order, who's been told that the reason they're alive is because of the survival of the fittest, who've been told there is no God, why should they believe that it matters how they act? Why shouldn't the strong men prey on the weak women? You can say, I don't like it when that happens. Well, that's well and good. But if they can get away with it, why shouldn't they? 
a big deal is made nowadays of rights, human rights, children's rights, women's rights. A big deal is made of racial equality, that there should be no hierarchy, depending on the colour of your skin. And all these things are true and good, and they are Christian. The reason all humans have value is they are made in the image of God. We are not accidental byproducts of the Big Bang and evolution. Each of us is stamped with the image of God. If you deny that, it's very hard to provide any basis for why the strong shouldn't dominate the weak. Uh, One of my teachers back in the days when I was at Bible college, uh, he said modern society is like a house uh, with a man standing it. The man is, is, is a sort of secular modern man. And he points and says, look at this wonderful world. Look how, we, look how we champion human rights. Look how we're anti-racism. Look at all these wonderful values we hold. And the professor said, the thing is, the house was built by Christians. And then the secular modern man has run up to the front door, thumped the Christian in the faith, chucked him out the, the back door and said, look at the wonderful house. But it wasn't built by secular values. It was built by Christian values. It actually makes no sense based on secular values. If you're not a Christian, this is something I really urge you to think through. If we are just space dust, here by accident, if we're here because we survived, we were fitter, then why would there be anything inherently wrong with not dominating other people? Why would anyone have rights? What does that even mean? Judges shows us what happens when people work through that worldview. And we're beginning to see it in the world, aren't we? In our world, I mean. Take off the brakes. Then why should anyone hold back? But actually, I think there's something much more significant going on for us here this morning. I want to speak to two groups as we close. First of all, to those of you who find this shocking, this passage shocking. For those of you who are asking, how can this be in the Bible? It goes without saying, or it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Clearly, there's nothing to be copied in here or emulated. Every now and again, you you get this kind of angry atheist saying, look at these horrendous things that happen in the Bible. How could Christians act like that? And the point is, well, we don't think we should act like that. People do bad things in the Bible. So there's, there's nobody in this story we went to emulate. But the story does tell us not to be naive. As Christians, I mean. Did you pick up the two shocks? To be fair, you can only really pick up one of them because I didn't read the whole passage. There's two shocks in the passage. The first is the obvious one, which is this is God's people doing this. This is not a scene from being in in Philistia or Egypt. This is not the Amorites or the Moabites or the Hittites. These are God's people doing these horrendous things. It is the church, as it were. That's why I mentioned earlier that that no character has a name. Why not? Well, we've had Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and Deborah and Barak, and there'll be names all the way through the book. Why not in this last section? Well, I think it's because the, the author is telling us that, that the characters are kind of every man. This is what every Levite was like, more or less. Every host was like. Every elder in Israel was like. Every Benjaminite was like. Take any one of them and you'll get the same thing. The church has become that wicked and the other shock is there in the middle of chapter 20 now we didn't read this to be fair but in the middle of chapter 20 have a look at verse 28 or 27 the sentence starts verse 27 we're in the middle of those battles and the the people are coming and asking why they're losing so they come to the ark of the covenant and the priest verse 27 of chapter 20 and the people of israel inquired of the lord 
the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. Now, you kind of read over that. He's the only person named in this whole story. And you'd read over it. It's a funny Bible name. Off we go. But do you notice who he is? Who's the high priest? Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Aaron's the brother of Moses, children. Do you remember that? In other words, we are only two generations from the Exodus. Moses was his great uncle. Aaron was his grandpa. Two generations from the generation that saw the Red Sea, the plagues. Two generations. That's how quickly Israel has descended. It means, by the way, that this story doesn't actually happen at the end. Judges isn't, Judges isn't written in chronological order. You know, as if Samson happened after Jephthah and then Gideon happened before Jephthah. It's not written like that. There's kind of scenes all over the place of what's going on in Israel at the time. Here is Phineas, just two generations, a godly leader himself, and yet total wickedness everywhere. What's it telling us? It's surely warning us that we need to recognise that this kind of depravity, horror, abuse, assault, violence, even murder can happen in the church when Christ isn't actually recognised as king. Other people still had the ark and the tabernacle. There was kind of outward acknowledgement. But Christ wasn't actually king. And so in the people of God, these things happened. And we've seen it recently, haven't we? Perhaps not to the extreme, extreme extent. But not a hundred times better. We've seen it even... In the, the, the Bible-believing church, I've sort of undenied all week about whether, you actually, whether to actually name names and institutions all the way out of it. Perhaps it's best if not. But in the, 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 the Bible-believing conservative evangelical church in England, there have been horrendous stories coming out in the last five, six, seven, eight years. Men who've stood and preached, doing horrendous things. One minister who, who came and preached in our church in, in Derby, who was speaking at the big conference, ended up on the front page of the Telegraph because of what he'd done. It's been the same in the charismatic networks or some of the big kind of summer conferences. It's been the same in the uh, American church plant networks. Almost whatever world you've come from, there have been horrendous scandals inside the church in the last few years, or rather revealed in the last few years, but tolerated for many years beforehand. That's the point. Judges is warning us, this can happen. Don't be naive I was in Scotland a few years ago, and there's a, a Christian publishing house up there. It's in this beautiful setting, and I happened to know one of the guys there, so we went there, and he you know, let all the kids choose a free book and that kind of thing. And um, as I was leaving, he said, I want to give you this. He gave me what one book that I just put on the shelf and ignored for ages. Uh, it was called Hidden Evil. And he said, you must read it. You must read it. We're trying to get everyone to read it. I don't care if no one ever buys it. Just read it. We're trying to get pastors to read it. Hidden Evil. And it's all about the horrendous suffering that often goes on silently within the church. Judges 19 through 21 shows us we must be aware. And it shows us too, we need to recognise that we are capable of acting like this if Christ isn't our king. It'd be possible to read Judges 19 and, and just how dare they, how awful they are. And all the kind of, the, the, the vision goes outwards as it were, all the targets, all the arrows go outwards. We condemn rightly, the men of Gibeah, the Levite. We think of all the sort of baddies we can think of in our own day, but we never even stop to check our own hearts too. That would be, I suggest, a mistake. We need some humility. 
None of this is to deny that bad guys are bad guys, nor is it to say that everybody is equally bad. But Murray McShane, one of the great preachers of uh, uh, the Scottish Church a couple of hundred years ago now, said at one point, the seeds of all sins are in my heart. That's honest, he was an incredibly godly man. The seeds of all sins are in my heart. And he goes on to say, and perhaps the most dangerous are those I don't see. If we think we're not capable of doing certain things, we're fools. Paul says the same. You think you're so strong, careful lest you fall. Our, our hearts are like powder kegs. In the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, we're so angry and ready to go off like that. I'm trying to think is it can happen to us even if we've suffered too. We can be so driven by anger that we end up mistreating others. Judges 19 is meant to be incredibly sobering and drive us to cast ourselves on Christ's mercy daily for forgiveness and for cleansing. Lord, prevent me from going where these men went. Even as Christians, even as those forgiven, sin still remains and is very strong within you. It's like the old man, Paul's it, the old man who dwells within you. He's dead in one sense. But Martin Luther said the dead man floats, dead men float. If we're not constantly fighting our sinful nature and trying to crown Christ as king every day, and it needs to be every day because we forget so quickly, then the dead man will float up. And eventually, whatever it is, the anger, the lust, the violence, the greed, it will float up. To those who find this shocking, don't be naive, the Lord says. And then finally, to those, or to those who know this story all too well. For some of you, this, this story, it might surprise you, it's in the Bible, but it's a story you know. The details might be different, the names might be different, the circumstances might be different, but you know real evil, real suffering. You've either suffered at the hands of others, or you've seen those you know and love. And church, therefore, can be incredibly lonely. Um, it's one of the kind of probably unavoidable difficulties of being part of a church where we do rightly sing about joy. But there's a danger, and we need to be careful as Christians we don't get this wrong. There's a danger that, that when we come to church, what, what we're doing is, it's, it's um, sound of music, isn't it? Raindrops on roses, whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm wooden mittens, brown paper packages tied up with string. These are a few of my favourite things. Everything's lovely, everything's wonderful. But it isn't. Not yet. And even when we talk about suffering, that, that song, I've never watched Sound of Music, I had to look up the lyrics, you might have seen me reading them there. That, 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 song, that song deals with, with the times when things are hard. When the dog bites, the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favourite things, then I don't feel so bad. And off he goes again, or she goes, I don't know who sings it. Raindrops on roses and kittens and mittens, all the rest of it. It's not true, is it? It's just nonsense. I'm terribly sorry, the family of the Levites' concubine. But just think about the raindrops on the roses and the kittens and the mittens and the swans gleaming in the moonlight. What use is that? It's just trite. We don't live in an idyllic snow globe world. And some of you know that deeply. Uh, that's why this passage is good news. God isn't blind to this wickedness. Other people may never know, but God is not blind to it. He's seen the darkness and he has entered into it. This is an Advent sermon, actually. Advent is all about the light of the world, God the Son, coming into the darkness. Not coming into the rainbow sparkle factory. 
to make it even more glittery. But coming into the darkness, a broken, weeping, sinful world in order to bring redemption. So the answer to this, this horrendous abuse of power that goes on in, in Judges, be it the Benjaminites, the Levite, the Gibeonites, the answer, counterintuitively, is not less authority, but more authority, just the right authority. We need the king. But you've just got to get the right king. What you don't want is a king from Gibeah. And amazingly, as the, the story of the Bible goes on, the very next book, the book of Samuel, at least as the story unfolds, is all about how the Israelites choose a king. They look with their own eyes and they say, there's the guy for us, Saul. And where's Saul from? Gibeah. Incredible. Gibeah of the Benjaminites. Saul is from there. And lo and behold, he's a disaster. There are bad rulers. Just as there are bad husbands, bad ministers, bad kings, bad presidents, bad prime ministers. But the answer is not no king. And even in this story, there's just a little glimmer, isn't there? Did you notice it? There's only one character in the whole story who does any good. One place that seems to be a place of safety and refuge. It's named four or five times, I think. It's the father of the concubine who comes from Bethlehem. They go and rest at Bethlehem. 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 I've been at Bethlehem. Bethlehem seems like, huh. Maybe that's the kind of place that I could find safety and joy and rest. And so what happens when Saul from Gibeah is eventually deposed as king? Who becomes king? David, who is from Bethlehem. It's just shadows, just flickers in the darkness. But it's wonderful, isn't it? And of course, David, what does David do? Uh, David conquers Jabus. Remember the city that should have been the place of rest for them? That should have been the place of safety? He conquers Jabus. And he, it's called from then on Jerusalem, which means city of peace. David creates this city of peace, Jerusalem. Where men, women, children can be at peace and rest. And you already know where this is going, don't you? David himself is just the beginning of the light. Centuries later, his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, will be born in, well, of course, Bethlehem. And Jesus is the exact opposite of everything we see in this story. He is the husband to the bride, children of the church. God's people are called a bride many times. He is the husband to the bride. But instead of sacrificing the bride to save himself, he does exactly the opposite. Unless you think I'm just sort of playing with images here. This story about Gibeah comes up only one more time in the Bible. Hosea preaches on it. He talks about the wickedness of the days of Gibeah. He talks about it three, four times in his prophecy. And Hosea, if you know the story of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet who is told to go and marry a prostitute, even though she'll be unfaithful to him. God says, go marry a prostitute. She is unfaithful. And God says, take her back. And the whole thing is meant to be a picture of God's love for his people, that though we're unfaithful, he still loves us. Again, it points onwards to Jesus, the true Levite, the true son of David, the true child of Bethlehem. We cheat on him. We don't love him. We're unfaithful to him. We are the harlot. We deserve to be rightly punished, not unfairly punished. We deserve to suffer. But Jesus says, no, he goes out the door. He goes into the darkness at the cross as the lights, not just of the town, are extinguished. 
that the lights of the whole world are extinguished in the darkness of the cross. He says to his father, treat me like she deserves to be treated. We joined in. We took him, abused him, spattered him, tore him, shredded his skin, tortured him to death. And he didn't need to be there, did he? Jesus didn't need to be there. But he wanted to be there for the sake of his bride. Here is a king you can trust, a king from Bethlehem you can trust. In the darkness, he suffers, he chokes, he dies, but always with his eyes on the bride to rescue her. And so the call that really of judges is, is, is throw yourself at the feet of this king and under his protection. He has built a new Jerusalem, a new city of peace, the heavenly Jerusalem that one day will come down from heaven. One day all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Some of you have been in horrifically dark places. Maybe you are still. I don't want to pretend to give easy answers. But King Jesus' eyes are on you and he loves you much, uh, enough to be tortured, crucified, so that you might be saved for this heavenly city of peace. One day dawn will come. One day all will be at peace. But the only way to find entrance through the doorway to that place of safety is through him. And he will take you, whoever we are, whoever you are. It's the one carol. I love the carol and I hate the carol. Come all ye faithful. Well, yes, in a sense. But Jesus says, come all ye faithless. Come all ye cold-hearted. Come all ye hypocrites. Come all ye angry. Come all ye lustful. Come all ye abusive. Come all you wicked, come all you spiritually dead, come and find life and forgiveness in me. He will have you this Christmas. He will take anybody if we come and ask for forgiveness. Judges, of course, warns us if we are in those positions of power, we must not act like these men did. If you are in some sort of authority position, church, family, work, government, then God is against any kind of exploitation of that power. You must stop it. You must repent. But you can stop it and repent and find forgiveness at his feet. For those who are too like the men of Benjamin, repent and fall at his feet. To those suffering at the hands of modern-day Benjaminites, Lord Jesus does understand, he does know, and he will carry you safely to the city of peace in the end. Why the darkness on the journey, I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. But he has not lost control, and he's proved it at the cross. His bride is worth more than his own life to him, and so he will take you safely home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we see wickedness like this, and... Uh, we confess that uh, we're quick to sneer, we're quick to imagine we're totally different, uh, but we know in McShane that our hearts are capable of all things. Purify us and rescue us, Lord Jesus, become increasingly king of our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls. I pray for those who need to repent uh, today, uh, that you would pour your spirit on them and shape them, shape all of us more into the image of the king who dies for his bride. We pray, our Father, we lift you, those who are particularly suffering at the moment, who know the darkness. Our Father, we don't know so often what to pray other than come, Lord Jesus. 
rescue, sustain and strengthen. Bless your people, we pray. For we ask in your own name. Amen.